take a Bible this morning, let's open it together to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30, if you would. We're going to be continuing in our ongoing study of the life of the great man of God, David. 1 Samuel chapter 30. And if you didn't bring a Bible, how about borrowing a copy that we have for you right there on the back of the seat in front of you? We're going to be on page 213 to start. Page 213 to start or 1 Samuel chapter 30 in your copy of the Bible. Now, you know, there are some laws in our universe that are just always true. They're like irrefutable. For example, two plus two is always four and E is always equal to MC squared. And you never wear plaids and stripes. And and uh, here's another one. Jewish people make Jewish men make great husbands. This is another one of these irrefutable laws of the universe. What's wrong with that? That's true. That's true. Well, I got another one for you that I want to talk about this morning. We're not going to talk about any of those, but we're going to talk about this one. And you know this irrefutable law of the universe. And I'll say part of it, and you'll know the end of it. You ready? What goes around... Sure, you know that. Now, we're going to talk about this today, but in a slightly different, uh, from a slightly different viewpoint than maybe you've ever heard it talked about. So stick with us. We'll come back there. But first, I want you to see this what goes around comes around eternal law. I want you to see it prove true in the life of King David. So I want to pick up with you. First Samuel chapter 30. A little bit of background. Remember that in chapter 29, last week, we saw that David had gotten himself in a real pickle. He had gotten himself hooked up with the Philistines and they, he was going to have to go with them and fight in this battle and kill his own people. And God, through some incredible circumstances that you can get the tape or read the chapter, God stepped in, God extricated him from that and sent him home back to his hometown, a little place called Ziklag. Now, that's where we pick up the story. Verse 1, chapter 30. And David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day, and the Amalekites had raided the city. They had burned it, and they had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but they carried them off as they went on their way. And when David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were gone. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no more strength left to weep. Now try for a moment to put yourself in the stirrups of David and his men. For three long, dry, dusty days, they're trudging on home. And the whole time, all they're thinking about is how great it's going to be when they get home. They're going to get a warm bath. They're going to get a hot meal. They're going to get a kiss from their wife. They're going to get a hug from their kids. They're going to be able to plop down in their easy chair and read USA Today for a couple of days as it's piled up. And when they come over that last hill and they're ready to swoop down on their town and get all of this, all of a sudden they realize there's no town there anymore. It's gone. Nothing but a big old pile of rubble still smoking as the, the fire is still going out and the children are gone, the wives are gone, the easy chair is gone. It's all gone. And the Bible says they were so upset that they wept until they had no more strength left to weep. I've been a pastor for 18 years and I've actually met people who have said to me, Lon, I'm all cried out. I have cried so much I have nothing left to cry with. And if you've ever been there, you know a little bit of the despair that David and his men were feeling. Now, look down at verse 6. It gets worse for David. It says in verse 6 that the men, David's men, were so upset that they were ready to stone David to kill him right on the spot. 
Pretty dicey moment here for David. But I'll summarize here just a little bit. David pulls himself together. He goes and consults with the Lord. And he says to the Lord, Lord, what should I do? And the Lord, he said, David says, should I go after these, these men that raided our, our village? And the Lord says, go, I'll give you success. And so David rallies his troops and they set off in hot pursuit of these Amalekites. And it's at this moment that a very interesting turn of events happens. Look at verse 11. It says in verse 11, as David and his men were going, they found an Egyptian in the field and they brought him to David and they gave him water and to drink and food to eat because he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. And when he finally revived, verse 13, David asked him, to whom do you belong and where, where did you come from? What are you doing lying out in some field like that about ready to die? And here's the story he tells them. You can read it. He says to them, I'm an Egyptian and I was the slave of one of these Amalekites who raided uh, your village. We went down there and we raided it. But on the way as we were leaving, I got sick and I began to slow everybody down. And so what they did is they threw me out in this field like I was an old useless piece of baggage. They left me no food. They left me no water. They just left me here to die. Now, look what David does at that point. Verse 15. And David asked him, can you lead me down to where this raiding party is? Can you show us where, where they're camped? And, and the man answered and said, well, swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master and I will take you down there. I'll show you exactly where they are. Isn't it interesting that instead of killing this guy for being part of the raiding party on his village, instead, David says to him, if you will show us exactly where these Amalekites are camped, we will not only spare your life, but we will put you in the witness protection program, sir. We'll give you a whole new identity. We'll take care are you? And this guy goes, you bet nothing would make me happier than to help you fry those bums that left me out there in the field. Verse 16. And so he led David down, showed David exactly where they were camped. And the Amalekites were scattered all over the countryside, eating and drinking and partying because of the great amount of plunder that they had taken from Judah. And David fought against them from dusk until the evening of the next day. And none of them got away except 400 men who rode off on camels and fled. And David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else. He got back his easy chair, everything. It all came back. Now, you know what's really interesting about this story? What's interesting to me is that these Amalekites had no one to blame for their demise but themselves. I mean, think about it for a second. If they had treated that servant with some, some, some compassion, if they had treated that servant who got sick with some pity, with some human decency, with some kindness, instead of discarding him in the field like an old piece of luggage, he wouldn't have been in the field for David to find. He wouldn't have been available to David to lead David down. Down and set up this ambush, they had nobody to blame for what happened to them but them. It was their own action that came back around to bite them because you know the eternal law of the universe, right? What goes around comes around. Now, that's the end of our passage, but it leaves us with another eternal question in the universe. And what is our eternal question in the universe? So what? That's right. That's our eternal question. Now, you didn't know it was an eternal question, but I just proclaimed it one. So um, anyway, so what, Lon? This is wonderful. I'm glad David got his stuff back. But you know what? This doesn't really affect my life one bit. 
Well, I think it does because I think it highlights this principle of God that what goes around comes around. And I can't think of anything that has more implications for our lives than that principle. It may surprise you to know that this truth, what goes around comes around, comes right out of the Bible. He said, Alon, I've read the Bible for a long time. And I have never read in the Bible what goes around comes around. No, and you won't, because God doesn't say it exactly like that, but he does say it. And to show you that, I want you to turn into the New Testament with me to the letter that Paul wrote the Galatian church, the book of Galatians, chapter 6. If you're using our copy of the Bible, it's page 826. Page 826, Galatians chapter 6. Turn there with me. And let's look and see what it says. Galatians chapter 6, here is God's way of saying what goes around, comes around. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Here's what God says. He says, do not be deceived. Don't let anybody sell you a bill of goods on this. God cannot be mocked. You say, Lon, that's not true. I meet people who mock God all the time, make fun of God all the time. Friends, that's not what this verse means. What it means is, in fact, some other translations will translate it, nobody makes a fool out of God. The next verse says, whatever a person sows, that's exactly what they're going to reap. A person reaps what they sow. You see, if you could sow all kinds of nasty stuff, ungodly stuff, uh, immoral stuff, and you could reap blessing and wonderful things for doing it, then you'd be making an idiot out of God if God lets you do that. And what this verse is saying, nobody is going to make an idiot out of God. Believe God, whatever a person sows, that is exactly what they're going to reap. God's going to see to it because you're not going to make a fool out of him. Now, the first time I ever really was hit by this verse was when I was in seminary. I was in a Greek course. We were studying the book of Galatians. And I'll never forget, we got to this verse and we talked about this verse. And I thought, man, this is a pretty scary verse. I mean, to think that whatever I sow, that's exactly what's coming back around. And that God's going to see to that. And I'm not going to get away with anything. That was pretty scary. So I was walking to lunch that day with the dean of the seminary. Whereas we were walking to lunch, I said to him, I said, you know, we studied Galatians 6, 7 uh, in class. I said, you know, that is a scary verse. And he turned to me and he said, well, Lon, he said, "Um, all depends what you sow. (laughs) See, seminary professors have a way of doing this, just taking all the wind out of your sails like that. But even though that was 20 years ago, I never forgot his comment. Because what he was really saying was that this verse, yes, indeed, can be a curse. If you're sowing ungodly behavior, corrupt behavior, disobedience to God, selfishness, unethical actions, immoral actions, if that's what you're sowing, then based on this verse, yes, this verse is a, is a curse because you're going to reap what you sow. But if you're sowing good stuff, if you're sowing obedience to God, And if you're sowing godly behavior, if you're sowing honesty and righteousness and integrity and thoughtfulness and kindness and ethical action and moral behavior, if that's what you're sowing, then Galatians 6, 7 is not a curse. It's a blessing. It's a promise that you're going to reap the blessing of what you're sowing. And that's what he was saying to me, Lon, it all depends what you sow, whether this verse is a curse for you or not. 
What I love is the fact that the Bible, in making the application to our lives, makes the positive application on this, not the negative. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, Therefore, in light of the fact that what you sow you're going to reap, therefore, verse 9, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, based on verse 7, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Isn't it interesting that the Bible emphasizes the positive to do good, not the negative? The way I've heard this preached most of the time is, you do this wrong and you do that wrong and you do the other thing wrong, and buddy, you're going to get nailed because what you sow, you're going to reap. But that's not the Bible's emphasis. The Bible's emphasis is you do this right and you do that right and you do the other thing right and God is going to bless your life for doing it. You will reap the blessing at the proper time because God's going to see to it that what you sow, you're going to reap. Now, that's a whole different emphasis than I've ever heard preached on this verse. And so I got to thinking this week, that was a brand new insight. I can't tell you how many times I've read this chapter and it never hit me till this week that God is emphasizing the positive side of this truth. And so what I want to do is take the little bit of time I have left and talk to you about the positive things that you and I can sow that will guarantee that this verse will be a blessing in our life and not a curse. What are some positive things we can sow so that when we reap, we'll reap the blessing of God and not reap getting nailed? Okay, I got four to share with you. And here they are. Number one, the first right thing that you and I can sow is cultivating our walk with God, cultivating our walk with God. I want you to turn back to Psalm one for our last passage of the morning. It's page 383 if you're using our copy of the Bible. I want you to look at Psalm one, the very first Psalm. And I want you to see what it says about cultivating our walk with God and how when we sow that, I want you to see what it says about what we're going to reap. Psalm 1, page 383. It says in verse 1, blessed is the person. Now, what kind of person is this that has the blessing of God on their life? Look at verse 2. Blessed is the person whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on God's law, this person meditates day and night. Now, that's what this person is sowing. They are sowing a cultivation of their walk with God and, and uh, of their time in the word of God. And look what they reap. Verse three, this person will be like a tree planted by the streams of water. This person will be like a tree that yields its fruit right on time in season. This person will be like a tree whose leaf doesn't wither even in the middle of a drought. And whatever this person does, God will prosper it. See, friends, when we establish a consistent pattern in our lives of saturating our lives every day with the Word of God and saturating our circumstances every day with prayer, we are sowing and sowing and sowing a spiritual crop that has a yield. And what it yields is, based on Psalm 1, it yields spiritual depth and it yields spiritual stability and it yields spiritual resiliency and it yields spiritual fruitfulness in our lives that will see us through even the worst of things that life can throw at us. My wife, Brenda, and I many times have talked about the last six years with our little girl. Many of you know our little girl's been critically ill the last six years. And we've oftentimes commented, had it not been for all of those years that we did Bible study, 
Had it not been for all of those years that we, we, we studied and memorized Scripture, had it not been for all those years where we memorized the promises of God, had it not been for all of those years where we cultivated a prayer life with God, and we did all those things before there was ever any crisis, but had it not been for all those years where we tried to be faithful in sowing and sowing and sowing a walk with God, We've said many times there is no way in the world we'd have made it through the last six years. I mean, I'm not trying to tell you the last six years that we've tiptoed through the tulips here because we have not. There have been some really tough days, but we're still standing because when we needed to harvest spiritual stability, when we needed to harvest spiritual resiliency, when we needed to harvest spiritual depth, there was something there to harvest because we'd been sowing and sowing and sowing and sowing. And friends, in our world, crisis happens. It's just the kind of world we live in. And if you want to make sure when crisis does happen that you've got the resources there spiritually you can harvest to get you through, the way you do that is now, before the crisis hits, when there is no crisis, the way you do it is by sowing a cultivation of a relationship with God now so that there's fruit to reap when you need it. May I stop and say here also, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you don't have a personal relationship with Him, it's very interesting that one of the other things we found is that it's so wonderful when the bottom drops out of life, when the trap door opens and you go through to have the hands of God right underneath the trap door to catch you, like the hands of Allstate, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and so one of the wonderful things about a relationship with God is not just that you get to go to heaven, but that you've got the hands of God under every trap door in life. Otherwise, folks, when you go through those things, you're into free fall spiritually. You're in complete, you're in complete total disarray. And we're so glad we've had the hands of God under that trap door we went through. You need that in life. Free fall is no fun. And if you want it, the way you get it is by a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you don't have one, it's easy to get one. You just trust what he did on the cross for you. And I, I hope you'll do that because you need the hands of all state, the hands of God under you. Second right thing. Let's go on. Second right thing that you can cultivate now in your life. So now in your life so that you'll reap a blessing is faithfulness in the little things of life. Listen to what Jesus said, Matthew 25, 21. Jesus said, you have been faithful in a few things. Now, because you were faithful in a few things, I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Friends, this is one of the eternal operating principles of God. When we sow faithfulness in the small opportunities of life, that's when God lets us reap some of the greater opportunities in life. And this is a principle, this is a lesson for us not only to learn for ourselves... But this is an important lesson for us to teach our children and our grandchildren who are always looking for the shortcut to the big things in life. It's important to teach them that the only way God opens up the opportunities for the big things in life is when you and I are willing to show faithfulness in the little things of life. That is God's eternal principle. Everybody in God's army starts as a private, folks. And the only generals that make it are the ones who are faithful as privates. That's the way God does it. 
You know, my 17-year-old son, Justin, made his a high school baseball team, and he started the season as the third string catcher on the team. There was a senior who was the first string catcher, and there was another junior who was the second string catcher, and he was the third string catcher. And so every game, because the senior was starting and because the junior that was ahead of him didn't want to, he got stuck with having to catch bullpen. Now, the way what bullpen's all about is whenever they want to warm a pitcher up, they send a catcher with this pitcher down to the bullpen, and you spend your entire game with your back to the field, catching these people back and forth, back and forth. If you never played high school baseball, this is the real grunt job in high school baseball. And he would come home every week after week after these games, expressing how he felt about this job. In the house and he would go, I don't see why I have to do this. Why do I always have to go down and do this? What's wrong with that other catcher? I mean, he's not playing either. We ought to split the job. I don't understand why he always makes me do it. So I said, well, now, Justin, wait a minute. Remember what Jesus said. The person who shows that they're faithful in the little things of life, God will give them the bigger things in life to do. If this is what God's given you to do, I know it's grunt work. But if it's grunt work, you be faithful in the grunt work. And I'm telling you, God will exalt you at some point and reward you for doing that. So let me tell you what happened. The starting catcher, this senior, got suspended for some infraction of the rules for 30 days. So they put the second string catcher, this junior, in who would never go down and catch bullpen. Well, he went in, but because the whole season he'd never been catching any of the the pitchers, he wasn't familiar with them. He didn't know what their fastball looked like, what their curveball looked like, what their slider looked like, because he hadn't been catching them. He'd been sitting in the dugout having fun. He went in and looked terrible. They finally took him out and put Justin in and gave him a shot. Justin went in and because he'd been catching these guys all season long, he knew what every fastball looked like, knew the curveball, how every curveball was different for every pitcher, knew exactly where they threw the ball. He went in and looked wonderful behind the plate because he'd been down there catching them all season. And before you could say Yogi Berra, before you could say Johnny Bench, and before you could say Mike Piazza, Justin became the starting catcher on this team. So when he came home, I said, Justin, let's uh, let's talk for a second here. Uh, What lessons did you learn from this whole experience that you've been through? Now, we had to work on this a little bit. It took us a minute to lock on together, you know, as to what lessons we learned from all of this. But we finally got locked on and we finally agreed the lesson we learn is when we're faithful in the little things of life, God uses that as a platform to open up the bigger things of life. Folks, this isn't just true of high school baseball. This is true of careers. This is true of jobs. This is true of schooling. This is true of families. This is true in every walk of life. And if you want to reap the blessing of God, sow faithfulness in the little things of life and God will let you reap a blessing. Third principle. Third right thing that we can do is to be serious about financial stewardship. Now you say, what do you mean by stewardship? Stewardship simply means that we recognize that everything we have is God's. That every resource we have is just by the mercy of God and that we have a responsibility to use our resources in a way that honors God. And, 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 and part of using our resources that way means consistently giving to the work of the kingdom of God here on earth. Now, there is a goes-around, comes-around formula to financial stewardship. Listen, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly, and Paul is talking here about giving financially, check the chapter out. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Did you hear what 
goes around comes around? Jesus said, Luke 6.38, For with the measuring spoon that you measure out to the work of God with, with that same measuring spoon, God will measure back to you. He said, but Lon, I can't keep up and give all kinds of money and I can't compete with other people who can give a lot more than I can give folks. Time, way, ho, ho. Amount has nothing to do with this. Don't you remember the story of the widow and the two little pennies where Jesus was watching and all these rich men were coming in, throwing huge sums of money in. His little widow comes in and throws two pennies in. And Jesus called everybody over and said, hey, fellas, this woman gave more in the sight of God than all those rich people. You know why? Because she gave out of her poverty and they gave out of their wealth and it cost her more to give. And that's what God's really interested in. God's not interested in amount, my friends. God's interested in proportion. And you know, there were days when I was working in my early years as a Christian at Giant Food, making $50 a week, going to seminary, working part-time, paying for my own living expenses on $50 a week. And yet I struggled. I tried hard to make sure every week I gave God between 5 and $10 and put that in the offering plate. And I'm convinced there are Sundays where God looked around that church and ranked me right up at the top in terms of who gave what, even though people probably gave hundreds and thousands of dollars. I gave five bucks. But compared to what I was making, I was way up there with the widow sometimes in the sight of God. It doesn't matter how much you give. It only matters in terms of proportion what you give. That's what God cares about. I think of Vice President Gore. $197,000 of income. Total charitable contributions... $353. Luke 6.38, whatever measure you measure out, we'll measure back to you. God says you measure out with a thimble, I'll measure back to you with a thimble. You measure out with a dump truck, I'll measure back to you with a dump truck. If I were the gores, I would keep my thimble around because that's what it's going to look like, huh? This is what God cares about. You say, well, now, Lon, wait a minute. You're just saying all this because you're a preacher and you want our money. We know what's going on here. We're not stupid. We weren't born yesterday. We know what you're up to. Friends, listen to me. I'm not up to that. Look right in my eyes. I'm telling you the truth. I don't care if you give one more penny to McLean Bible Church. It doesn't make one bit of difference to me. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not telling you this because I want your money. I'm telling you this because this is true. I'm telling you this because this is God's promise. I'm telling you this because for 24 years, Brenda and I had lived like this or tried to live like this. And we have learned you cannot outgive God. We've seen it over and over again. And I'm telling you this because I'm interested in God blessing your life. I don't care about your money. doesn't make one bit of difference to me about your money. But I want to see you sow the kind of thing that God will bring the dump truck back up to your house and just dump blessing all over you. Fourth and finally... The fourth right thing that you and I can sow is taking care of our physical body. Now, I'm going to go from preaching to meddling right here, so I'm warning you. 1 Timothy 4.8 says, physical training is of some value. It's not of the highest value. Spiritual training is of the highest value. But physical training is of some value. And it's amazing to me how many Christians don't smoke or drink or cuss or chew, but they're digging their grave with a knife and a fork. And gluttony, you know, is not something we hear preached on much in church. And I'll tell you why it didn't. It's because very often the preacher is one of the worst offenders in the church. That's why you don't hear it preached on. 
Now, folks, let me say something to you. I know that there are sometimes medical reasons why people struggle with their weight. And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those of us who don't have a medical problem, except that we take more calories in than we burn off. We don't have any discipline in what we put in our mouth. We totally neglect physical exercise and physical fitness. And as Christians, we seem to believe that somehow we can sow major neglect of our physical body. And somehow we think God is going to suspend all the laws of physiology for us because we're Christians and we're still going to reap wonderful health and long life. I'm here to tell you, it ain't going to happen. I have buried so many Christians who believe God was going to suspend the laws of physiology for them by the way they lived, and God didn't, and He's not going to suspend it for you either. I tell you, that's why I go to the gym three days a week. And I've met a guy there just this past week who said to me, how in the world do you find time to get to the gym three days a week? And I said to him, I don't find time. I make time. I make it. And I'll skip lunch, and I skip lunch all the time. But I do not skip the gym unless it's a total emergency. I am at the gym three days a week like clockwork. You say, well, Lon, no wonder you look like such a hunk. Well, God bless you. Thanks for saying that. Makes it all worthwhile. Thank you very much. (laughs) But this is... All right. This is not about being a hunk, friends. <laughs> this is, wait a minute now. This is all about you having a lifestyle. You having a lifestyle that lets you reap good health and physical well-being for your body. You know, there was a great Scottish preacher named Robert Murray McShane. Preached in the early 1800s and led a wonderful revival in Scotland. Paved the way for Dwight L. Moody to come to Scotland in the mid-1800s. And, and yet he died at age 29, Robert Murray McShane did. Totally abused his physical body. And here's what he wrote at the end of his life. He said, and I quote, God gave me a message to deliver and a horse to ride, meaning his own body, to deliver it. Alas. I have killed the horse, and now I can no longer deliver the message, end of quote. This is not God's plan for us, friends. God's plan for us is not to abuse and neglect our bodies. And some of us here need to consider a radical change in our lifestyle. If we plan to reap good health and long life that God would love to give you, but He's not breaking the laws of human physiology to give it to you. You're going to have to meet those laws if you want it. Four things I suggest that if we sow, we will turn Galatians 6-7 not into a curse, but into a blessing. Number one, a steady cultivation of our walk with God. Number two, faithfulness in the small things of life. Number three, financial stewardship. Not the amount, but the proportion that we give. And number four, taking care of our physical bodies. And I would like to suggest to you that you take a hard look as a Christian at these four areas and ask yourself, am I sowing in these areas the kind of things that I'm going to be excited to reap? Because remember, whatever a person sows, that is exactly what they're going to reap. Or as we would say, what goes around comes around. That's right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for reminding us today that nobody's going to make a fool out of you. Rather, you're going to see to it that whatever we sow, that is exactly what we're going to reap. Now, that can be a curse, as we've talked about, but it can also be a great blessing. And I want to pray that you would help us examine our lives to make sure 
that the things we are sowing turn Galatians 6-7, that promise, not into a curse, but into a blessing. God, help us to be willing to make the radical changes in our lifestyle that we need to make. Give us the courage and the discipline that we will need to make those changes in these areas that we've talked about. If we're not already sowing the kind of lifestyle that we're going to be thrilled to reap the harvest from. Thanks for speaking to us very practically today. And I pray you would change our life because we were here and heard what you said to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.